Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 8th, 2010. You know, I'm beginning to think that I have way too much to say. Maybe I maybe I should go to four or five hours a day on the radio. And you're going, no, no. no I'm kidding. I, no, I won't do that. I was thinking about this the other day. I remember when I made it up to my, my first time I made it to two hours on the program. It was like a big deal. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think, well, critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It Listen, just because you have an idea that burbles up from within your psyche doesn't mean that it actually rises to the level of, uh, well, <clears throat> prophetic revelation from God. Yeah, it's... Listen, your, your your inner burblings, they need to, well, be compared to what God's Word says. And if you think you're hearing from God, um, you're probably not. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad to say, but true. And uh, there's a lot of folk out there who seem to think that they're hearing from God um, when, in fact, they may be hearing well from the other place. Yeah, it's um, so... How do you know whether or not you're here? Well, listen, you know, I don't know about any of the subjective stuff, but I do know where you can go to find out where God has spoken. And people go, we don't need the dead word of God. No, listen, it's not a dead word. Uh, God's word reveals that God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You want to know where God has definitively spoken? You go to the to the Bible all that other stuff, yeah, I don't know where, why you think that uh, that God somehow is revealing new things today. Um, uh, <clears throat> he hasn't promised to do that, and so if, well, if God really is speaking today, he might be, you know, well, then he would never contradict himself, so we go with the Bible. <sighs> just crazy stuff, just crazy stuff. And, and, you know, kind of in that in that vein, uh, if you follow the, uh, I, I, I've... I finally gotten to the point where um the dust is starting to settle after uh after my debate with Doug Paget and my visit to Minneapolis last week was kind of a catch up week and uh, you'll see uh really by tomorrow the podcast will be fully up to date and uh and and you know we'll be completely back on track and it's it's taken a while to kind of get to that as a result of it I felt like today well hey 
you know, I might try my hand at blogging again. You know, it's been a while. <laughs> I, I I got my start in blogging, and I feel like I've been neglecting my uh, my first uh, call into discernment type ministry. Actually, no, actually, my first call into discernment ministry had nothing to do with um, with blogging. It had to do with cult ministry. I I actually cut my teeth theologically doing cult ministry, and uh, at, at least that's where I, I began to understand apologetics, and that kind of led me uh, into studying it further. Anyway, um, today I I, uh, I wrote a blog post. Uh, I, as I when I read things, if I find really cool quotes, uh, you know, I, I put I use a, a a piece of software called Mac Journal, and you're going Mac Journal? Yeah, it, you'll, you'll notice Mac Journal, not PC Journal. It's Mac Journal because I'm an I'm, I'm an Apple guy. Anyway, uh, on Mac Journal, I've, I've I've got a ton of archives and and really articles that I've been I've kept hold of. For years, and then the, one of my journals that I keep there on Mac Journal is great quotes, and uh, and what I'm finding is is that um, some of the better quotes out there they're quote tweetable. Yeah, <clears throat> that means you know. Anyway, this one wasn't quite tweetable, but I thought it was worth passing along, and uh, so I put a blog post together today at letterofmark.us. L e t t e r o f m a r q u e dot u s. That's my blog. And if you have an RSS reader, you might want to point it to that. But uh, the name of the blog post is on trusting what God has revealed and rejecting what he hasn't. Uh, We live in a day where um, uh, postmodernism... It really is a, embraces a form of mysticism that you know postmodernity and mysticism seem to go hand in hand. As a result of it, uh, it's 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 as if these postmodern mystics are climbing their mystical ladder up into heaven. <clears throat> think Lectio Divina, and and, uh, and in order to peek at the naked God to get revelation that well has isn't in God's word. And funny enough, uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the really early lights in the uh, Christian church theologically was uh, a gentleman in the 4th century that was Ambrose of Milan and uh, and let me read what I wrote it says Ambrose of Milan one of the great theologians of the early church gives us some sage advice in his book uh, De Vocatione I can't even pronounce I don't know Latin uh, Vocatione Gentium book 17 that's where I found it anyway uh, that would anyway. This advice that he gives would be wise for us to heed today. And here's here's some um, Ambrose of Milan's quote. He says, "The things which God wishes to be hidden are not to be examined." Let me read that again. The things that God wishes to be hidden are not to be examined, and the things which He has made manifest are not to be rejected lest we as ingrates be improperly curious toward the former, that would be the things that are hidden, and damnably ungrateful for the latter. That's the things that he's made manifest. Yeah, it's a great quote by Ambrose of Milan. And uh, so let me, let me give you what, he, let me translate this for you. In other words, beware of today's postmodern mystics who claim that they're being given new truths by the workings of the Holy Spirit. When you take time to compare the postmodern mystics' nudges, whispers, dreams, and visions to the written Word of God, what you'll discover is that these folks are not getting new truths from God, but instead are being fed the same old lies the devil has been spewing from the beginning of human history. Yeah, it's just one of those sad things. So, um, in theological speak, 
we talk about material and formal principles. Um, uh, material principle is the center of your theology. Formal principle is those is is by what authority? We what what's your authoritative source for the material principle that you think is the center of your theology? And so to put it in and kind of give you a rough cut on this. Uh, in it, Christianity should be, you know, our material principle, our, our the center of our theology, you could say is Christ and him crucified for our sins. Uh, you could even further boil that down, sub-point A1, um, being um, gra- salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. What's our formal principle then? Scripture alone. Scri- God's word, Scripture alone. That's yeah, that. How do we know? You know, that's what speaks authoritatively. Tradition, uh, the writings of men, the theological uh, subjective ego. Those don't. Those have to actually be judged by Scripture alone. Now, today in the postmodern mystical world, which is not, it, which has crept into more than just the emergent church. But, you know, those folks out there that are writing eulogies to the emergent church, they don't seem to understand that this stuff has actually crept into uh, the, kind of the heart, uh, the uh, the beating heart of American evangelicalism, postmodern mysticism. And in fact, uh, the, uh, some pretty prominent guys out there are trying to combine um, uh, Reformation theology with postmodern mysticism, and you just can't do that. It you No, know, it doesn't work. Postmodern mysticism and biblical Christianity don't mix. It's a formula for disaster, and we've seen this over and again. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, churches and church bodies and denominations end up in the gutter, why, why they end up being kicked to the curb and end up becoming just completely silly, is because, um, well, they, what they do is they put something else alongside of the Scripture, Okay, and it supposedly, it supposedly that thing that comes alongside has authority, and so when we look at uh, what happened to Roman Catholicism, well, you, you can see you know this this train wreck is really easy to identify wh- wh- where things went wrong. You just follow the tracks back, and you sit there and go, "Oh, I see what happened." They left the authority of Scripture, and they put alongside of the authority of Scripture um, so-called tradition. Uh, the uh, the uh, which basically then said that the Pope can speak infallibly, and things of that nature. And as a result of it, you have all these bizarre things coming along into Christianity. In fact, things went really bad when they decided they were going to lock the Bible up in Latin. Why Latin? I don't you know I don't understand that. It, it anyway. So you, historically, we can look at what happened. They locked the Bible up in in the Latin language, and it was not. It was considered impious and uh, sinful to uh, to speak God's word in the vulgar uh, language of the uh, of the masses of the time. You know, you know, English, German, French. Instead, God's word was locked up in that perfect language known as Latin. It reminds me of the old uh, the KJV only folk. Uh, so what happened is is that the people weren't hearing the word of God. Uh, well, they were hearing it, but if you didn't know Latin, <laughs> a lot of good that was that would do you. And so they were completely dependent upon people to tell them what God's word said. And well, what happened is is that God's word kind of well um, took a back seat. I mean, if if um, if you think of religion as a bus, 
See, what happened is is that uh, Christianity has God's Word in the driver's seat. And, well, when, when people don't like it when the God's Word is in the driver's seat because then the God of their own making can't have any say in what's going on. And so what they did is they didn't want to completely get rid of God's Word because then everyone would know what you were doing if you did that. And so they took God's Word out of the driver's seat and they sent it to the back of the bus. And, you know, everything else in front of it was more important. And you sit there going, wait a second, uh, what about God's Word? They say, oh, well, we still think God's Word is important. We have a we have a high view of God. We think that God's Word it plays an important role. Uh, but it's over there at the back of the bus. And so, um, yeah, let me give you another metaphor that you can kind of grasp onto here. Um, since you're listening to Pirate Christian Radio, either on podcast or on a live stream, um, the, one of the things that uh, we're all familiar with is this idea of smugglers. You, 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 you've heard of smugglers, people who, well, they smuggle things. And, uh, and I love that verb, smuggle. Um, anyway, they smuggle things. And th- usually smugglers smuggle things that are contraband, things that are illegal, things that are, well, um, that, the, uh, that the, the state or whatever has frowned upon and said you can't have uh, this thing from that place for whatever the reason is. And so here's the idea, is that w- in God's Word, you know, we understand what God has revealed about himself. But what happens is, is that man by nature has false ideas about God, um, uh, has a, uh, by nature has a false deity. Usually it's them, it, you know, the... Uh, the deity that um, men and women worship by nature is, well, the god of their own making, the god of, you know, the build-a-god. You go to the build-a-god shop. And uh, so here's the idea is is that as long as God's word is reigning and as long as God's word is a thing that's normative, as long as sola scriptura is in play, then what happens is it becomes really super easy to pick off the smugglers. It, yeah, it's... You know they're sitting ducks uh, when God's word is is you know the thing that is the center norm and and is authoritative. But so what happens is is that theological smugglers want to smuggle in their contraband theology, and the way they do it is by convincing people, "Hey, put down that sola scriptura thing. You're going to hurt somebody with that." And so what happens is is that when they convince people using really st- stupid arguments like, hey, we don't need sola scriptura because when you do that, you've got a paper pope. Yeah, you wouldn't want a paper pope, would you? And people go, no, that sounds terrible. I wouldn't want a paper. No, I, that's awful. I don't want a paper pope. And so what happens is is that they say, see, you gotta, you've got to be in tune with what the Spirit is doing now. Oh, okay. And so what happens is you you put away the paper pope in order to embrace what the Spirit is doing now, and all you're doing is, well, you've now opened your church up to a bunch of theological smugglers who are bringing in contraband theology, all under the guise of, well, you know, the Holy Spirit. You know, so you think about it this way, is, is that smugglers are usually pretty cool, pretty good at, like, hiding their... Th- they're, they're contraband items. And so uh, one of the ways in, you know, that people hide uh, the, 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 the bad theology they're trying to smuggle in is they, they hide it in this drawer called the, the, the new thing the Spirit's doing today. And see, you sit and you go, oh, yeah, well, I, I don't want to be against what God is doing today because, I mean, I wouldn't want to limit God. 
And so, well, yeah, when, as soon as you start thinking this way, what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to contraband theology, you know, theology that's banned in the kingdom of God. And why is it bad? banned? Because it's a lie! <laughs> it's real simple. So anyway, so that's the idea. We're against theological smuggling, and the way the theological smugglers work is by claiming that they're having mystical experiences. Yes, that these postmodern smugglers, uh, they're claiming that they're having mystical experiences, that they're being led by the Spirit. And, well, and they, so they go, wait a second. Um, if that's true, then why is the Spirit telling you things that are contradicted by God's Word? And then, and see, then they'll they'll then at, when you say stuff like that, then they get really upset, you know. <laughs> In fact, when I posted this thing, I sent out a Twitter tweet. I still hate that word. And uh, one folk who hang, one of the guys who hangs out on the emergent uh, circles sent me a, a harshly worded um, tweet response, you know, because I said, you know, quoting Ambrose. That uh, you know, I I made my point, and that is is that we're to not try to figure out what God hasn't revealed. No, 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 no. We're to be satisfied with what God has revealed in His Word. It's it's real simple. And hang on a second here. Uh, how did I lose this letter of Mark? Dot U.S. Sorry, I you know I don't know what happens. I I switched screens and I lost my so it, so. Let me reread what I said here regarding Ambrose's quote. In other words, beware of postmodern mystics who claim they're being given new truths by the workings of the Holy Spirit. When you take the time to compare their nudges, whispers, dreams, and visions to the written word of God, what you'll discover is these folks are not getting new truths from God, but instead are being fed the same old lies that the devil has been spewing from the beginning of human history. Well, I've got an emerging guy who took umbrage with that particular blog post and he said well if that's with that in mind it looks like we have to throw out the trinity in all theology post new testament and then he says assurance leads to hate (laughs) no we don't need to throw out the doctrine of the trinity because the doctrine of the trinity is clearly taught in scripture it's what god has revealed about his nature as for all theology post new testament um, your theology's only, uh, only uh, let me put it this, this is kind of a bad way of putting it. Your theology, I, I don't have, you're not supposed to have your own theology. Theology is, is, is understandings about God. So if you're going to be doing theology, your theology is only as good as, well, it's fidelity to Scripture. And if you're coming up with your own theology that, well, contradicts Scripture, we don't need your theology. In fact, we, Christianity would be far better off without it. Yeah, it, the goal here is zero creativity. Yeah, that no innovations, inno, innovation when it comes to theology, creativity when it comes to theology, those are the things that get you in trouble. Yeah, we're, we've been get the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's been handed to you. Your job is to pass that off to the next generation. And don't mess with it. You don't get to... You don't get to change it, because if you change it, you're not really passing on the faith once delivered to the saints. You're passing on, well, your own theological burblings. And theolo- your own theological burblings that come up from—listen, well, that's listen, bad, it's difficult to tell the difference between the work of the Holy Spirit and bad sushi. Therefore, go with Scripture. Yeah, just telling you. 
All right, yeah, enough of my monologue for the day. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the program today here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, I'm going to read a, not an email, but a, a a handwritten letter that I received when I was in Newburgh, Oregon. And uh, and uh, the reason I'm going to read this is because it'll it. I, first of all, this is probably the this is out of all of the personal emails that I've received and messages I've received, this is by far uh, the one that stands out as the one that really gets why I do what I do here at Fighting for the Faith. And it's it's so well-written and so heartfelt that I really wanted to pass it along. And um, this is one of those ones, I'd have it bronze, but I'm afraid if I had it bronze and we'd lose the words. This is uh, This is some serious treasure that I have here. And this... Uh, uh, when they ultimately, you know, open up the Chris Rosebro uh, Library and uh, Museum, which will probably be a small tool shed somewhere in the middle of um, central Indiana. Uh, yeah, in fact, it'll be free and it may not even be worth the price after that. But this will be one of the things that uh, uh, I, I think should be featured in the uh, Chris Rosebro Museum and uh, library uh, someday in the future. It, it, it because this uh, out of all of the things that have been written, this is the one that understand that gets why I do what I do, and uh, and I want to pass this along to you. Uh, that being said, I also received a, an email from a gal who was a former attender at uh, Solomon's Porch there in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, she chimed in regarding my debate with Doug Paget. And uh, I'm going to read that for you today. And then uh, for the balance of the first half of the program, what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to uh, provide my director's cut commentary on Doug Paget's opening argument. Okay. And uh, you're sitting there going, you're going to go back and you're going to, yes, I am. Because um, because I didn't set out, I told you this before I, did, I went to Newburgh. It was not my goal to uh, slay Doug Paget. Uh, uh, instead, I really wanted Doug Paget to feel comfortable enough to speak his own theology, and I want you to—I I want to deconstruct what what happened there because then you'll understand what uh, what you know what he's up to. So we're going to do that for the balance of the first half of the program today. Second half of the program during hour number two, we're going to do a bad sermon review. And that it comes to us via uh, Mariner's Church in Irvine, California, and the name of it is A Christianity Worth Believing In. Uh, James Chong uh, is uh, the gentleman uh, doing the preaching there, and uh, we reviewed uh, a famous uh, video that James put together, and uh, and so we're going to be reviewing that sermon today. Why? Because it'll show you the the changes that are occurring to Christianity in the mainstream as they're as they're being influenced by postmodernity, and so uh, you, you you need to listen to that. So, and then I want to let you all know that uh, when we do Friday Light this week, now there's a chance I might do Friday Light early this week, and uh, I'll explain why later in the week. If 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 it turns out that Wednesday comes around the corner and I'm doing Friday Light on Wednesday, then you'll know that the plans that I've made have come through, and uh, as a result of it, I may not be in studio on Wednesday, and that that would require me to do a uh, a, a Friday Light. But I want to let you know that for the next, really beginning this week 
on into the Christmas season. You know, here it is, the second week of November. Starting this week on on into the Christmas season, we're going to be playing a series of lectures delivered by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of uh, Whitehorse Inn fame, uh, my mentor, on uh, on the two natures of Christ. And this is not Theology 101. This is a little bit more advanced theology. And what I mean by that is, is that it, th- this is highly nuanced, very detailed, very it's it's the kind of stuff that um if you think of, of basic theology and catechism as being um you will say uh, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich this is um a steak with um with a very fine aged wine and some uh some very good hors d'oeuvres to go with that wine this is this is this is a chewy meal that takes some time to uh eat enjoy uh, contemplate and digest. That being the case, um, I'm going to let you know now that if you're if you really want to get the full experience, because <laughs> you know it's all about experience. If you really want to get the full experience of what's going to happen during these lectures and what it is that you're going to be hearing from Dr. Rosenblatt during these lectures, then I need you to visit my website, fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, along the um, the left-hand side of the uh, of the of the uh, website at fightingforthefaith.com you will see uh, underneath the calendar it says featured books and there's a there's a featured book that says Chemnitz's works okay and if it looks like it's in black and it says two natures of Christ here's what you need to do go to fightingforthefaith.com Click on that featured book link for Chemnitz's works. You'll be taken to Amazon.com, and you're going to want to purchase a copy of the book, The Two Natures, uh, Two Natures of Christ by Martin, uh, Two Natures in Christ by Martin Chemnitz. And this is going to be quite a stretch. Are you ready for this? You're going to. It's going to be tough for you to get a hardcover edition of this book. If you don't own it, it's hard to get, and it's really expensive if you buy it used. That being the case, you're going to want to get the Kindle edition. And I've linked to the Kindle edition. You're saying, but I don't own a Kindle. Do you own a computer? <laughs> going, uh, yeah. Otherwise, how would I be listening to your program? To which I would say, right. <laughs> if you're listening to this program... The chances are like 99.9% that you actually own a personal computer, okay? Now, if you own a personal computer, that means you are capable of reading Amazon's Kindle books. And you're going, really? Yes, yes. Just go to Amazon.com, look for their Kindle software. It's featured right there on the homepage. You can read an Amazon Kindle book if you have a Macintosh. You can read an Amazon Kindle book if you have, heaven help you, a, a Windows version of uh, of your of a personal computer. You can read an Amazon Kindle book if you have an iPhone. You can read an Amazon Kindle book if you have a BlackBerry. You can read an Amazon Kindle book if you have an iPad. You can read an Amazon Kindle book if you have an Android. You can also read an Amazon Kindle book, get this, if you have an Amazon Kindle. So <laughs> I know this is all sounding just way too Yeah, I know this is crazy. This is quite an experiment. But um uh, 
the idea here is is that you want to read this book along with the lectures. So I'm letting you know now that um, it you 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 want to get this book and you want to read and follow along with the lectures that we're going to be playing from Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on the two natures in Christ. If you really want to get the full depth and magnitude of what it is that he is going to be teaching on. And these lectures are going to take us well into December. This is not an easy topic. And uh, and so the, we're going we're to do something crazy here. I mean, we're going to do some advanced theology. And uh, I, I've got I to gotta tell you, this book, The Two Natures in Christ, it is not the kind of book that you can do you know, light reading this is the kind of book where you read a page and a half and your brain hurts. I should know. I've <laughs> my brain <laughs> hurts every time I open this book and it's thick and the words are small and there's a lot a lot a lot of uh scripture references in this. So you I and you're thinking, are you sure you want to do this, Chris? Yes, I want to do this. So we're going to be listening to a fantastic set of lectures by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on the two natures in Christ. We're going to be doing it here on the program, and if you want the full experience, you need to go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on the link that I have in the left-hand column on uh, the works of Martin Chemnitz. It'll take you to the Kindle edition, and here's the fun part about it. If you purchase the Kindle edition um, of uh, the two natures in Christ— you can download it and start reading it immediately. You don't have to wait for UPS. You don't have to wait for the for the mail. No, none of that. You can start reading it immediately. And what I would request that you do prior to listening to the first lecture, you may want to read chapters one and two. It's a tall order, and when you see what I'm talking about, you'll you'll say, "Yep, that's a tall order." But you know what? Here's the deal. I know you can do this. And uh, I think you you would benefit greatly from this. That's why we're going this way. So I just want to let you know that. Okay, so I'm going to take our first break. When we get back, I'm going to read uh, a letter, an email, and then begin the process of, uh, of, of working through Doug Paget's opening argument. We'll get part of it today, part of it tomorrow. So we got lots of ground to cover, and uh, so there you go. So if you (laughs) go ahead. Chris, my head is spinning already. I I know mine is too, but uh, that my head spins all the time. It's just goes with the territory. All right, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, your own subjective ideas, burblings, and intuitions do not rise to the level of revelation from God. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means, well, it means we depend upon you 
and your financial partnership with us in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, time for a little bit of, this is actual, the traditional type mail, so hang on, and we'll get to email after this. All right. First, uh, this is a handwritten letter that I received when I was at the debate in Newburgh, Oregon. This is written by Jennifer, and she's from Abilene, Texas. And uh, she also, along with this letter, uh, sent along a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, Jennifer, first of all, thank you so much for the uh, fuzzy bunny slippers. I, I got to tell you that my wife and I do have a tendency to arm wrestle for them. I just wanted to let you know and that sometimes she does win. But that being the case, they are ridiculously comfortable, and I want to thank you uh, for them. That also being said, uh, I want to make it very clear that uh, even better than the Fuzzy Bunny Slippers were was, well, this incredible letter that you hand wrote on this uh, gorgeous paper. And I, 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 have, I, I cannot thank you, begin to thank you properly for... Uh, uh, for your gift as well as your kind thoughts. That being said, I want to share this uh, letter that you've written uh, with everybody here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So this is a letter from Jennifer in Abilene, Texas. She says, hi, my name is Jennifer, and I'm from I'm 25 years old, and I'm from Abilene, Texas. That makes perfect sense. She says, I grew up in a Christian home going to a seeker-friendly Baptist church. I accepted Jesus into my life on several different occasions at various youth camps, engaged in the uh, overly emotional Jesus as my boyfriend worship music and applauded my pastor for being less pastorly and preaching message that messages that seemed less condemning and more applicable to everyday life. As I grew up, I started feeling like something was missing but never knew another kind of church. I spent the majority of my teens and early 20s feeling guilty on a daily basis and constantly fearing for my salvation. I knew Christianity was supposed to be freeing, but I felt damned 99% of the time. I'm going to pause right there. Jennifer, I know exactly what you're talking about, and this is exactly why I do this program and why we talk about law and gospel, sin and grace, and the things that we do here. I've been down this road. But let me continue. Jennifer writes, But on with the letter. I am writing you for a reason, after all, and I wanted to share with you some of the ways your podcast has been ministering to me as a way of saying thank you and as a means of encouragement. The first major shift, and the easiest to uh, to click and change for me, happened immediately when I heard of your 
uh, heard you critique seeker-friendly sermons uh, for the Bible twisting and the eisegesis as opposed to sound biblical doctrine. I immediately exclaimed, oh, that's what I was missing all of those years. Once I realized there were men out there that would teach what the Word of God actually says, I left the mega church I had been attending and sought out a smaller church where the pastor takes large segments of Scripture and teaches what it actually means. Now, the next change came when I heard you discuss law versus gospel. This also resonated well with me, but it took a little while for me to fully grasp the concept. You see, in the seeker-friendly church I grew up in, they would say, quote, salvation by grace alone. But what they actually taught on Sunday mornings in youth group and in life groups was salvation by works which led to the above-mentioned guilt and fear. Jennifer has an amazing point here, and that is is that she said she attended churches that said they believed in salvation by grace alone, but what they really taught was salvation by works. There was a disconnect. Once I started to get the hang of this lesson, an amazing freedom I had never known started to take hold of me. I realized that this God I serve was more powerful than I had ever believed. It was exciting to be free from the fear of, have I done enough? And in a way, it completely simplified the gospel. It went from just do this, that, and the other, and don't forget this one too, to Jesus died for our sins, period. With this new realization of law versus gospel came a greater confidence in speaking with others about salvation. Now, this next one, I I still find myself confused every now and then. Old Testament stories are not meant to be an analogy one applies universally to all people. When I heard you say that, I said, whoa, stop the train. What? Then then what are you supposed to do with them? Yes, I, I talk to the radio often. That's okay. You know, it's okay if you talk to the radio because that still seems sane. Um... Jennifer, I actually talked to myself, which doesn't sound sane at all. So, you know, it, if only we the microphone were on when I did that. Anyway, she says, Now, after several episodes of Fighting for the Faith, I began to grasp the concept of the scarlet thread and the miraculous story of God keeping his people so one day Jesus would be born. The most recent and life-altering change came very recently when you had made the distinction between accepting Jesus into your heart and God pulling you into a relationship with him. I was driving and almost had to pull over because I was so furious that such a fundamental piece of Christianity had been taught to me wrong and that I had never, ever thought to question it. Understanding that the Bible teaches that it is God who pulls you out of your sinful, dirty wretched state and breathes new life into you, and because of that you say, my God, I am so sinful, I repent, please forgive me, it just changes everything for me. It exalts God higher than I believe most of the Christian church holds him, to an incredible place of power and majesty that the lover Jesus I grew up with could never even aspire to. This brought me to my knees, and I repented to God for holding such a low view of him for so long, and and for inadvertently thinking I had the control of my life, and 
He was just that guy that steered me in the right direction and attempted to keep me headed down the path of righteousness instead of the path of evil. For treating him like my personal cheerleader, my life coach, and my very own genie in a bottle. I am so grateful for your show because people like me need things spelled out clearly for them, sometimes to be shown the lie and the truth side by side. I originally thought I would have nothing to learn from you, uh, to learn from you or your show, because I knew that the glory cloud and the movie sermons were obviously a sham, but it has helped me grow in areas I wasn't even aware problems existed. Thank you again for all that you do. Jennifer from Abilene, Texas. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you for the words of encouragement, and thank you for this email to encourage me based upon what God has done and revealed to you through this humble and silly program. Thank you. Okay, moving along. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, that, that, that mail, though, it, that is one that I keep and I, I go back to from time to time because sometimes it's hard to do what I do here at Fighting for the Faith, and the reason it's hard to do it is because, I, I, well, I, I upset people, and they have a tendency to want to let me know that they're upset at what I've said. So it's, it, it helps to get words of encouragement. I've got another. I got an email that I want to share from you from a gal by the name of Deborah from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Deborah is a former attender at Doug Paget's uh, church, uh, Solomon's Porch. Deborah writes. He says, "Chris, my name is Deborah, and I attended Solomon's Porch for years. I always knew much was wrong, but could never put my finger on it." Finally, I learned to ask the right questions. It took a long time because Doug never actually stated his deceptive agenda or what he actually believed. When I figured it all out, I wrote to him, talked with him, and then left. As a Jewish believer of over 40 years, I never imagined that what I finally figured out could possibly be true. I'd go into details, but I'm sure you already know some of what I have to say. I listened to the seven-part discussion that you had with Doug on the topic of hell and language, etc. You were clear, you were humble, and you stayed true to the teachings of Scripture, and I want to thank you. I'm writing to you to suggest a question for Doug. You may already know this, but he doesn't actually believe in heaven either. Yes, I'm aware of that, by the way. He has said many times that Jesus isn't actually coming back, second coming, because he's always coming. It may take thousands of years, but the earth will be recreated and and regenerated as we partner with God. I actually hit him with my large teacher's bag when I heard this. Perhaps you can ask him about this as well. Unlike me, you probably won't be as shocked. Deception is tricky, I've learned. There are always things that resonate with us, things we agree with, and things that we want to agree with. We are drawn to it, and it's given an opportunity to do what it sets out to do, deceive. After 40 years of following Jesus, I was deceived, but you won't be. There's more I could tell you, but I won't take up any more of your space. Thank you again for what you do. Um, Deborah, thank you for your email, and I am very thankful that God opened your eyes to the deception that you were being given at Solomon's Porch. 
I pray for Doug, and I pray for the folks there at Solomon's Porch, that God would open their eyes to the deception that they are buying into. Because ultimately, Doug's eschatology that he buys into, his recreationist eschatology that eliminates heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal punishment, ultimately it devalues the gospel and turns basically the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone into something that is yesterday's garbage. And instead, he's created a new religion of works, partnering with God to help bring the kingdom here to earth. That is a gospel of works. And so I'm thankful for your email, and uh, I will keep you in prayer too. And if I have the opportunity to uh, further dialogue with my friend Doug Paget, I will. So I wanted to pass that along to to, uh, the listeners here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, now, moving along, what we're going to do now um, on the program is I'm going to begin the process of letting you hear Doug Paget's opening statement. And and by the way, you're going to have access to download the whole uh, the entire uh, debate uh, to listen on your iPod uh, it, probably by tomorrow. And uh, Doug Paget has actually taken the video and uh, put them online. So if you uh, if you go to Doug Paget's blog, you'll be able to uh, if you want to view the video of the debate, you can do so. But that being the case, I'm going to begin the process of kind of doing a director's cut thing, so that you can you know so that you can begin to see what it is that Doug did in his uh, opening statement and in the and in the other parts of the debate that are that you you need to be aware of so that you understand the technique that he engaged in and how we as Christians are to view that and uh, do something about it so with that here is uh, the here here's the uh, Doug Paget's opening statement after my opening uh, statement at uh, the uh, Newburgh uh, Believers Reason conference and debates we, uh, Chris and I, uh, took an invitation to engage in a debate, uh, something that both of us don't do normally. We were invited to come into a particular forum to have a conversation. The moderator was our, also our inviter, and he framed the question when we started. We're not talking about everything under the Bible. We're not talking about everything in Christianity. We're talking about one specific question, and this is the sort of nature of this kind of debate. The question is... There is a literal hell where man goes to if not saved. That's the question. That's the argument. So as I put together my thoughts and Chris put together his thoughts, it was around that particular question that we're answering. So Chris is supposed to get up here and say, here's why I think it is a literal place. And then my job is to get up and to say, I don't know that you proved that point. So as the moderator told us earlier, Chris's job is in the affirmative. My job is simply to show if he made his case or not. Now, whether you find that to be an interesting project and what you came out for or not, we talked earlier, could seem a little frustrating, right? So I can simply say, Chris did not make the point. He didn't make it as a literal place. If anything, he made the argument that it's a literal furnace. That was his argument. If anything at all, he said it's a literal furnace. Now I got what I should have done at this point is thrown my hands up in victory. <laughs> Why? Okay. Why should I have thrown my hands up in victory? I should have declared victory at this point. 
Why? Because he said that I've proven that hell is a literal furnace. That's kind of the whole point. That's kind of the whole point. Hell, you know, by the way, do you know of any furnaces that don't exist in a place? Hmm? Can you tell me about non-spatial furnaces? Now, Plato, you know, Plato has, in his philosophy, he has a realm that, uh, where, you know, the perfect things exist that's non-spatial. But that's Platonic philosophy, not biblical revelation. So Doug has admitted that I've proven that hell is a literal furnace. We continue. He decides to take Jesus' explanation of the parable and not give it a spiritual explanation connected to the Old Testament narrative. He gives it a literal and gave us some pictures up there with equal signs and said it was a furnace. Okay, now let me, let me help you out here. Let me back this up. I want you to hear this again. It's going to take a while to get through this. There's no way that we're doing this in one day. Hang on a second. I want you to listen again. Listen to this. And not give it a spiritual explanation. Okay, I'm backing up just a smidge further. Listen. He decides to take Jesus' explanation of the parable and not give it a spiritual explanation. Okay. Doug's complaint is that I've proven that it's a literal furnace, and I refuse to take Jesus' explanation and give it a, quote, spiritual meaning. What's a spiritual meaning? Okay, listen again. He decides to take Jesus' explanation of the parable and not give it a spiritual explanation connected to the Old Testament narrative. He gives it a literal and gave us some pictures up there with equal signs and said it was a furnace. Okay, now... Let me read the passage again for you, the one that I pointed out, and I'm going to show you what's what's going on here. He, Doug's complaint is that I've proven it's a furnace, and I didn't—his complaint is, is that I didn't take Jesus' explanation and give it a spiritual meaning or spiritual explanation. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, okay? And uh, the passage in question— is uh, found uh, verse 24, okay? Now, here was my argument. What I did is I took Matthew 13, starting at verse 24, and I showed you that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He was speaking parabolically. Let me, let me point this out. Matthew 13, verse 24, He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay. Now, what I pointed out is that the disciples had no idea what Jesus meant by this. Okay. 
as we continue to read the narrative, here's what happens. Verse 36, when he left the crowds and went into the house, the disciples came to Jesus saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, if you if if you uh if you've downloaded my uh, my powerpoint slides for my uh my uh, for the debate for the uh, my opening statement what i did is i basically you know did a, i said jesus explains you know each of the different symbols and he gives you the literal meaning and what i did is i said the one who sows the seed equals the son of man i just took the word is out and i put a equal sign okay the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Notice that Jesus isn't given a spiritual explanation. He's giving a literal explanation. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Okay? What's Doug's complaint? That I didn't give a spiritual explanation. And the reason I didn't give a spiritual explanation is because Jesus didn't. He gave a parable, and then he didn't give us a spiritual explanation. He gave us the the literal meaning, and he demystifies all of the symbols. Okay? So here's Jesus' words. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, why did I not give a, quote, spiritual explanation? I didn't need to. Why would I give a spiritual explanation? Because Jesus wasn't giving a, quote, spiritual explanation. He was giving the literal understanding of the parable and the symbols that he was using in the parable of the weeds. Okay? So Doug is saying, I haven't proven that hell is a literal place, but I've proven that there's a fiery furnace— and his complaint now is that I didn't give a spiritual explanation. Listen again. He decides to take Jesus' explanation of the parable and not give it a spiritual explanation connected to the Old Testament narrative. He gives it a literal and gave us some pictures up there with equal signs and said it was a furnace. And then throughout, you don't hear a lot about it being a furnace, do you? Because nobody has ever described hell as simply a literal furnace with a fire somewhere in the middle. Then we go to the, to the story. Okay, now, hang on a second. Listen to this again. And then throughout, you don't hear a lot about it being a furnace, do you? Because nobody has ever described hell as simply a literal furnace. Okay, now that's, that's a deconstructionist argument. Okay. What he's doing is he's do, he's reducing down saying and basically making a claim. Well, no one has ever given this explanation. It's just literally a fire a furnace. Okay, this is a reductionist argument. This isn't even this is and notice he's not arguing from the text. He's basically arguing against Jesus's explanation of the text, not mine. 
All I did was point out what Jesus said and how Jesus interpreted all the symbols in the parable. Okay? By the way, the Scriptures describe hell in many different types of imagery. Fiery furnace is one of them. Lake of fire is another. One of Jesus' favorite terms is the Gehenna of fire or the trash heap of fire. These are ways in which he describes it. He calls it eternal punishment. He describes it as outer darkness. Okay? All of these are phrases that Jesus uses to describe it. But what's what's Doug Paget doing? He's engaging in postmodern deconstructionism. He's attacking the meanings of the words and basically trying to, in, in a sense, say that this is an absurd meaning, therefore we can throw out the entire concept of hell altogether. It, it's a form of word magic, if you would. Okay, it's a form of word magic. Let me give you an idea, and I use this in in the debate. If you know, if I were to uh, read uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, okay, let me back. Let me pull up. Uh, let me pull one up on my computer here. Shakespeare um, sonnets. It's uh, it's sonnet number eighteen. Listen carefully. To this Shakespeare writing. He says, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate." Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometimes declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But the eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of thy fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade. When eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and gives, and this gives life to thee. So in, in this uh, sonnet that he's written, it's a love sonnet, he says of the one that he loves, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Now, let me, let me use this deconstruction, this argument. Well, I mean, this is silly. I mean, women are not summer days. You know, to say to the one that you love that, you know, that they're a summer's day, no one ever talks of, of women being summer's days. Therefore, we must conclude that, that Shakespeare really didn't love the person that he was speaking of because, well, that's silly. No one ever talks of love at like a summer's day. I mean, summer's days, they all, we all know what they're like. They're, they're hot and they're muggy and there's bugs. And, uh, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, why would anyone want to, you, know, you, you see... If you're going to compare your love to a summer's day, that's ridiculous. We can know that, therefore, because nobody is like a summer's day, that's ridiculous, that therefore love doesn't exist, especially in this particular case. This is the exact same argument that uh, Doug Padgett is using. Okay? He's attacking a particular meaning, trying to use a reductionist argument, and then, therefore, because he's attacked the meaning of the word, make the conclusion, ergo, hell doesn't exist. It's ridiculous. It's the same as basically saying, because Shakespeare used language and compared his love to somebody as like a summer's day, that therefore love doesn't exist or his love for this person didn't exist. It's ridiculous. It's, it's a complete misusing of language. It's word magic. It's a word game. Okay? And Doug Paget is a disciple of Jacques Derrida, the postmodern deconstructionist. And this is what you're listening to. You're listening to 
postmodern deconstructionism. Let's continue. With a fire somewhere in the middle. Then we go to the, to the story in Daniel, and now we're supposed to conjure up that. We know what that first looks like. Is that what any of us coming in here who believed in hell would have thought hell was? A literal furnace? Um, well, Jesus describes it as a fiery furnace in a lake of fire. So the issue is not what any of us would have thought of it. The question is, what did Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, describe it as? Or is furnace some sort of word picture? Because later we're told it's the lake of fire, but not a furnace. Um, just got to ask a, just a question. What is the substantive and qualitative difference between a, quote, lake of fire and a fiery furnace? You know, one of the things I work from is this idea that a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. So lake of fire and fiery furnace, they sound like synonyms to me, and Jesus used them interchangeably as synonyms. So his argument is, it's a furnace, literally. So, but it seems to me, we got a couple good people together here, Chris and I, and all of you, we could talk about a few other things other than that argument. That would seem a little, a little wasteful, wouldn't it? That he has to argue that it's a literal place and the best he can come up with is one section out of Matthew that he chooses to interpret literally. Uh, no, no. Actually, my argument didn't involve just one section out of Matthew. That was my starting point. And if you, you, if you can check my PowerPoint slides, they, they're, they're included in the download. Um, I, I argued from Matthew. I argued from John, I argued from 1 Thessalonians, from 1 Peter, and then from the uh, Church Fathers. Showed that, starting with Matthew 13, we have a literal explanation given regarding this eternal fate known as hell, and that the disciples understood Jesus literally, and this was demonstrated from their epistles, and then... I showed how they, the disciples passed this literal understanding of Jesus on to their disciples because the, the writings of the early church fathers is consistent with that literal understanding and literal interpretation of Jesus' uh, parables. So notice the reduction. Just So all he argued for was from this one place? No, actually I argued from all over the New Testament and the writings of the church fathers. But notice the reductionism that he engaged in. Let me back it up. You can hear it again. Watch. That would seem a little, a little wasteful, wouldn't it? That he has to argue that it's a literal place and the best he can come up with is one section out of Matthew that he chooses to interpret literally. And I... One section. One section. Notice the reductionist argument. I choose to interpret spiritually and figuratively, and then we can have a debate about the literalness of interpretations of parables around the furnaceness. Ah. Furnaceness. <clears throat> we'll do a little bit more. So, on occasion, just for the point of the very fine debate put together by Ken, we will have to come back to the point of he didn't make his point. But there's more to it than that. So let's talk about what's more to it than that, if we could. Now, Chris said earlier in his opening argument, and I think this is quite important, that we that there's this authority that exists. The scripture has authority. Then he said, but we don't... No, no, this is actually a misinterpretation. This is a mischaracterization of my argument. Okay? Jesus is our authority. The question is, where can I find the words of Jesus? Answer, 
in the eyewitness testimony given to us in the New Testament. We have eyewitness testimony of Jesus' teaching and words, and it's only found where? In the New Testament. So we have the authoritative words of Jesus recorded for us by the eyewitnesses. Jesus is our authority, and and the only place I can go to where I can know where I'm hearing the teachings and deeds of Jesus is the eyewitness testimony given in the Scriptures. We don't have access, actually, to the Walt Disney. So now we're one step removed from the Walt Disney, and now we're going to listen to an eyewitness account. And then he said, and that's empirical evidence. I would simply argue as a social scientist, that's not empirical evidence. That's not what the word empirical evidence actually means. It's not empirical evidence. What we're doing is we're both going to be guides and opinionators and teachers of what we think that means. Now, I think that happens to be in the very fine tradition of Christianity. So, I would like you to think about two passages with me, and I'm sorry they're not up here, so you're just going to have to listen to them. One of them comes out of 1 Timothy 3, 16. When I was first introduced to Christianity, it was a stream of folks who uh, liked to do Bible memorization, so they taught us how to do Bible memorization, and one of the ways we did that uh, Bible memorization with the navigators was that we would memorize a verse and then state it and then the verse again, and we would often go through a little sets of verses together, so some of us memorized the three sixteens, and we know all the way through the Bible all the interesting three sixteens. So one of them uh, reads like this, 1 Timothy 3.16, Beyond all question, Paul writes to Timothy, the mystery of godliness is great. There's a great mystery to all of this. And then in, in 2 Timothy... Okay, hey, notice, he's quoting this Timothy passage. Quote, the mystery of godliness is great. So somehow this then gets overlaid over the clear teachings of Jesus so that we don't have to listen to the clear teachings. Instead, we get to shroud it in mystery so that we can create a spiritual interpretation of this passage that is mysterious. Mysterious. Mystery. So you you don't have to know. You can't go and say Jesus spoke about this clearly. No, 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 no. The mystery of uh, the, uh, the godliness is mysterious. Uh, the mystery of it is great. See what he's doing? He's trying to shroud this thing now to get away from the clear teaching of what it says. He's going to shroud it in mystery by basically misapplying this uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 passage to the clear teachings that I've given, the clear passages on the doctrine of hell. 3.16 writes this, However, Timothy, my insertion, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The godly will be persecuted. Now, what exactly does this passage have to do with the clear teachings of Jesus and the apostles and the church fathers on the doctrine of hell. This is kind of like in magic, yeah, the, you know, one of the things that they that magicians engage in is sleight of hand. They distract you away, they distract your attention away in one direction, and while you're focused on that, they're doing something over here with the other hand. That's what he's doing here. What does persecution have to do? 
the mystery of godliness is great. Uh, so we got to look at mystery. And now he's quoting a passage regarding persecution. But what does this have to do with anything? He says, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Can I repeat that one without it being too rhetorical? Continue to learn, I'm sorry, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. Now, wouldn't this passage argue against Doug Paget's position? Answer, yes, it clearly would. Because we can say with certainty that Timothy learned of the literal place called hell, of the coming wrath of God and Jesus' second coming, and that the sheep and the goats would be separated, and the goats would go to eternal punishment while the sheep would go to eternal life. How how can I speak so authoritatively in this sense? Because you can read what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Apostles taught on this, and what Jesus taught on it. They didn't teach what Doug Paget believes Timothy did not believe what Doug Paget believes at all. And how from infancy you've been taught to know the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now notice the text that he quoted. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Rebuking, part of the rebuking function of Scripture is to rebuke false doctrine and teaching. Kind of odd that Doug Paget's quoting this passage, don't you think? So that the one of God, so that the, so that the, the person of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. See, it's a fine tradition that we have in Christianity that we don't treat the text as if it is our authority. Um, what? He he just okay. Notice what's going on here. Hang, I mean, it doesn't even make any sense at this point. Um, hang on a second here. The conclusion that he came up with doesn't make sense in light of what he of what he just read. Okay, listen to his conclusion. I mean, it, it's like a hundred and eighty degrees opposite of what the text he just read says. Christ Jesus, for all Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the one of God, so that, the, so that the, the person of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. See, it's a fine tradition that we have in Christianity, that we don't treat the text as if it is our authority. <laughs> he says, okay, so l- l- watch what he does. Okay? For 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read from the ESV, verse 14, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God, and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Where is Paul pointing Timothy back to? The Scriptures. 
that the scriptures are authoritative, that they're the very words of God, that they're breathed out by God and are used for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. In other words, we can know in the scriptures what God has said, and we can rebuke and reprove and correct those who teach contrary to what God's word says. Yet, Doug Paget here in his opening argument, makes the 180-degree different conclusion than what the actual text that he quoted says. Here's Doug Paget's conclusion. Here we go. See, it's a fine tradition that we have in Christianity that we don't treat the text as if it is our authority. Does that make any sense at all? So what you see here is that Doug Paget is literally engaging in postmodern deconstructionist obfuscation. No. Second um, Timothy 3, 16 and forward argues for the very authority of Scripture, and yet Doug Paget seems to think that it argues against it. If God's Word wasn't authoritative then why would we use it to reprove and correct and rebuke those who teach contrary to it? We continue. God is our authority, and we follow God as we have been taught through the traditions that we follow. So both Chris and I are going to be representing a tradition, and we're going to be arguing from a tradition. Actually, uh, Doug's tradition dates back to the 1990s. The, quote, tradition that I follow goes all the way back to the New Testament, back to Jesus, because it's what the Scriptures teach. But we are not objective readers of that tradition. I'm going to be arguing tonight that one cannot stand back from the Scriptures and say, it wasn't me, it's just the Scripture saying it. For the Scriptures don't simply say anything. They're coded in English for us. They've been coded in other languages for others, and what we do is we engage with them and interpret them. So I will select certain passages and put an emphasis on part of it, and Chris will do the same, because what we're doing is the tradition of saying this story of God. Now, if you believe his explanation, then the scriptures can't tell you anything. So what he's basically arguing is is that, you see, you know, Chris is getting in the middle of this, and I get in the middle of this, and so you, the Scriptures don't say anything. That's pretty much what he's arguing. Okay, listen again. For the Scriptures don't simply say anything. They're the Scriptures don't simply... For the Scriptures don't simply say anything. For the Scriptures don't simply say anything. They're... You see what he's doing here? The scriptures have no meaning. The scriptures don't say anything. Is that what you believe about God's word? The scriptures don't simply say anything? That that all we get as we read the scriptures is our subjective interpretations of them? That we can't objectively know anything of, of the scriptures? That, there's, that, that God wasn't intending to communicate any particular thing? You see what he's doing with language? If you believe his ideas, his postmodern ideas, then the words don't have any meaning. God wasn't communi- trying to communicate anything with meaning. Though, in fact, the words can mean whatever you want them to mean. And that there, there was no way of getting at what God intended to communicate. Is that what this is that what you believe regarding the scriptures? I mean if this if his ideas regarding language are true, 
then, well, what I'm saying and intending to communicate to you have no fixed meaning either. In fact, you might as well just believe that blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. And that what I'm really trying to tell you is to join the emergent church and that words have no fixed meaning whatsoever. You see, after all... For the scriptures don't simply say anything. You see what's going on there? So this is an argument. This is when you really analyze what Doug Paget said at this debate and compare it with what I am saying. What you're dealing with are two people who have two completely different ideas regarding language itself. That God, I see, I'm basically saying that God communicated in clear language using nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, pronouns, and other grammatical devices to convey, convey a message that can be understood and believed. And that it can be understood and held on to. Doug, on the other hand, is engaging in postmodern irrationalism and basically making the statement that these words have no fixed meaning. And that to give a, to assign a fixed meaning to them is some is, is somehow doing violence to what God intended. And that these words are not to be taken literally or authoritatively, that God somehow is our authority above and beyond these words, and that we're just supposed to give a spiritual uh, interpretation to these words. That's what was going on in this debate. And it's hard to see it unless you know what you're looking for. It's hard to see unless you know what you're looking for. All right, that's installment number one. We will have installment number two in the editions ahead. There's much, much more that you need to listen to. I mean, my debate with Doug Padgett it has given literally a, a veritable treasure trove of data regarding Doug Padgett's theology and ideas that were not available until this uh, until this debate. So, all right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. (laughs) 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it. It's going to be a little bit longer program today. I apologize. Hope you're comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, adult beverages in hand. All right, let's cue this up here. good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon review comes to us via Mariner's Church, Irvine, California. Special speaker for this sermon, James Chong, C-H-O-U-N-G. Name of the sermon is A Christianity Worth Believing In. Before we even get into the audio, may I make a suggestion that the only Christianity that's worth believing in is the one that's revealed for us in Scripture. Whatever you feel about the gospel, whatever you feel about the good news, whatever you feel about what Christianity is, doesn't mean hokum. Your feelings never rise to the level of revelation, what God has revealed to Scripture. Your feelings are to be governed by the clear teaching of the Word of God. And when your feelings contradict what God's Word says, your feelings are wrong. You're going, you can't say that! Feelings can't be wrong! They're just what they... No, they can be wrong. If you you have a feeling or an experience that contradicts the Word of God, your feeling is wrong. That means it's incorrect. It is to be brought into alignment with what God's Word says. Your experience, your burblings, your feelings don't matter worth a hill of beans if they contradict what God's Word says. Yep, God's Word gets to decide, not you, not your feelings, none of it. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it is. 
I'm doing the law here. Bringing every thought and making it captive and obedient to Christ so that you can hear what the good news really is. So without any further ado, here is James Chung, uh, Christianity Worth Believing In from Mariner's Church. Here we go. The weekend message from Mariner's Church in Irvine, California. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Hello, Mariners. It's good to be with you. Uh, last time I was here, Mariners, not during the service, but with the staff, I had come in a, in a dress shirt tucked in and with, with slacks. Uh, this time around, I've learned my lesson. I've come in the correct attire. It's good to be here with you. Uh, can we start in prayer? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here with us. I pray that we might know the reality of your presence. That, Lord, you would speak to us. And, Lord, if I say anything that is from you, would you allow that to change us and move us and to make us more like you? And if I say anything that is not from you, would you keep it as far as the east is from the west so that only your word would remain? This sounds pious and everything, but uh, here's the deal. James, if you intend to bring anything that's not in God's word, then you shouldn't be bringing it based upon this prayer, don't you think? God, we love you. We ask for you to, to, to come in this time in a powerful way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start off with this one question. Uh, think of something great that happened to you in the past three months. Think of the best thing. It could be a place that you wait, could be a movie that you saw, or just something that happened in your workplace or in your life. But bring to mind something that has happened to you that that was the very best thing or one of the best things in the last three months. Let the good feelings come. Let the smile spread across your face. Okay, you got it? Uh, For me, it was something that happened a couple of months ago. And uh, I was away from my family. I have a three... Notice he's not beginning with God's word. Three-year-old who just turned three, Isaiah, and uh, someone who's... uh, And Nathan, who's almost one. And I was away on a trip, and I was coming home uh, the next day, and my wife, Jinhee, told Isaiah, Appa, which means daddy in Korean, Appa is coming home tomorrow. And Isaiah sort of shakes his head like this, pats his chest... And says, Appa is in my heart. (laughs) That's my son. And that's something that I remember. It was great news when my wife told me the story. And I just got on Facebook and Twitter and told everybody this story. Because that's what we do with good news, right? Now, how many of you, as you've recollected, brought that to mind, that that, that great thing that happened to you in the past three months, How many of you shared that with somebody else? Right? Almost all of you. When something good happens to us, we can't help but share that with somebody else. Why? Because we're made in God's image. And God is the kind of God that loves to tell us about great news. He's always telling about the good things that he's doing in the world and in our lives. And so us... Uh, whoa, 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 slow down there, Tex. Um, God's always telling us about the great things he's doing in the world and in our lives? Um, yeah, I'm not buying it. What are you talking about? 
us, who are, uh, us as people who are made in his image, we share that same characteristic. We cannot help but share the good things that happen to us with other people. And then something happens in that interaction, right? You're talking to your spouse or your friend, and you're sharing about that thing that happened, and they get excited about what's happening to you, and you're both getting giddy and jumping up and down, and there's, it, it's as if you're living the experience again. There's joy to be shared as you share that good news, right? We love to share that kind of stuff with our friends. We love to hear that kind of stuff from our family. We are wired to share good news. So that begs the question. We as Christians believe that we have received the best news in all the world. That throughout all of history, we have been told the greatest news of all about Jesus, the gospel, about what he did 2,000 years ago and what that means for us today. We have been told that this is the historical center of all of history that everything hinges on what Jesus did. And this, this is truly the hope of the world. And yet, when it comes to sharing with people that we know who aren't people who follow Jesus, when it comes to talking about this good news, we hesitate. We hem and haw. We get a little fearful, get a little anxious. Why do we do that? If we're wired to share good news, why do we hem and haw? just makes me believe then that either A, deep down inside, we don't really think it's good news, or B, we don't think our friends or family will think it's good news. And so we hesitate, because if we really thought they would love it, if we really thought something deep inside that we loved it. Okay, notice the subjective argumentation here. He hasn't cracked open a Bible at all. He's arguing from supposedly, you know, our own shared personal experiences, right? Watch what he's going to go after here in a minute. He's actually going to go after the biblical gospel and try to use his subjective experiences to say that it's wrong. We wouldn't help. We couldn't help ourselves but share this great news that's come along. Well, I don't want to just blame you guys. right? I went through that the same way. I remember this is way back when I was in college. And I was the only uh, person who followed Jesus in all of my fraternity. And for some reason, God had me leading a Bible study with eight other people who didn't know Jesus. And we were just studying the Bible together week after week in this frat house. And at one time, we were sitting there in a circle studying the scriptures. And this guy uh, named, we'll call him Kevin, he was standing by the door. We met in the chapter room, the main meeting room of our house. We left the door open for anyone who wanted to come by. And... Here's Kevin, and he's standing there watching us as we're studying the Bible. I mean, super awkward, right? He's there crossing his arms. Hey, I go, hey, Kevin, why don't you come on in? Come and join the circle. He goes, no, I'll just watch from here. I was like, okay. So here we are, and we start studying. And at some point, I'm starting to talk about how Jesus paid the penalty of our sins so that when we die, we can go to heaven. And Kevin shoots across from outside the room and says, so are you saying I'm going to hell? My eight friends are staring at me. I'm starting to blush. I could feel the sweat come down my brow. But I give an answer that I think is pretty good. Kevin, you don't have to. You have a choice right now. I thought that was pretty cool. (laughs) Kevin then says, well, okay, how is this? And he shoots across with another question. Okay, let's say I do, but my parents don't. Are you saying that they're going to hell too? 
I, you know, I tried it again. <laughs> well, they don't have to, Kevin. And he says, and he just stamps his foot down and says, I would rather be in hell with my parents than in heaven without. And he turns off and walks away. And I go, ooh, that didn't feel like good news. Did you hear that? Ooh, that didn't feel like good news. That didn't feel like good news. So we're going to stand in judgment of what God has revealed in his scripture because it didn't feel like good news. Fast forward to the day of judgment. Fast forward to the day when Christ returns. When he sends his angels to gather up all of humanity, and then he separates people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats, and he says to the goats, depart from me, I never knew you, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all of his angels. And he says to the sheep, come into my kingdom, you who are blessed of my father. On that day, will it sound like good news? Will it feel like good news on that day? You bet your bippy it'll feel like good news on that day. But notice, he's standing in judgment of the scriptures and the biblical gospel, the gospel that the church has been proclaiming from the beginning, and he's judging it based on how it feels. Let me back this up. This is So we're supposed to, at this point, chuck all of Christianity, what God's Word says, and what the church has taught from the beginning, because it didn't feel like good news to James. And he says, and he just stamps his foot down and says, I would rather be in hell with my parents than in heaven without. And he turns off and walks away. And I go, ooh, that didn't feel like good news. And that sort of carried on a little bit further up, up till a place where I was a, a church planter and an, in seminary and um, also working with InterVarsity staff, which is what I currently do now. Uh, okay, so if you want to know why the, there's a problem with InterVarsity and the things it's publishing lately, it's because this guy works there. Um, working on the campuses with college students. And I was having a, a crisis of faith because basically I really loved everything that was happening in Jesus' life. And particularly the stuff in the red letters of our Bibles. There was incredible rich stuff there. Of particularly in the red letters. Who's he come under the influence of? Liberals and emergence. Because... Aren't the liberals in the emergence the ones who talk about being red-letter Christians? Yet, funny enough, uh, what I quoted from in Matthew 13, that's all in the red letters. About how we're to love God and God loves us and how we're to love our neighbors and how there was ways that we could share the wealth that we have with others in need and that we could cross ethnic and cultural barriers. And there were great things in there that Jesus talked about that... Turn my heart on. But, and this, but, this was the question. If someone hated their neighbors, was a racist, spent all their wealth on themselves, 
jet set into Monaco, ate steaks and the best wines all the time, just a self-focused life. But at one point in their life, they prayed some sort of prayer. Would they get into heaven? Uh, notice the setup here. This, by the way, this is a straw man. Does the Bible teach that you can live like hell your entire life, but you know, maybe sometime 20 years ago, you prayed a prayer. Does that mean and does that mean you're going to heaven? This is a straw man. This is not what the scriptures teach. But so what what has he done? His feelings now are standing in judgment over the biblical gospel. And you're sitting there going, Well, Chris, what do you mean by the biblical gospel? If you have your Bible, flip on over to First Corinthians fifteen. God's word tells us what the gospel is. God's word teaches it. God's word clearly defines it. Let me read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul did not Paul is not the origin of this statement that he's going to make. This is an early Christian creed that dates to about 35 A.D., according to the scholarship of men like Gary Habermas and others. Here's, this, here's the creed. Ready? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures teach that the Gospel is. And the Scriptures also make it clear that those who will not repent, who persist in their sin and unbelief, that they will face the judgment of Christ, the wrath that is soon to be revealed. This is clearly taught in Scripture. Yet, James stands in judgment over Scripture because it doesn't feel like good news. It doesn't feel like the exciting stuff that makes his heart go pitter-patter in the red letters. And now he's engaging in a straw man argument, which is not what biblical Christianity teaches at all, that you can live like hell all of your life. But at some point you pray to prayer. That means you go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach this. So then he's, now he's using a straw man argument to further go after, I'll malign and impugn the biblical gospel. And this at one of the largest megachurches in Southern California. This is not in an emergent cohort. This is not at Solomon's Porch. This is not at the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. This is at a large evangelical megachurch. We continue. And I just went and had to drop my theological gloves and say, well, I guess so. And then it sort of struck me that the gospel as I was taught, a gospel that tells me that Jesus paid the penalty of my sins so that when I die, I can go to heaven, that that allowed a lot of room for people to live very selfish lives. Law, not gospel. He's attacking the gospel based upon the imperfect sanctification of Christians. 
And as long as at the end of the day, they just went, okay, pray to prayer, that they were given some sort of golden pass, that when they got to the pearly gates, they could scan the barcode going, boop, I prayed a prayer, and in they got. Yeah, this is not what Christianity teaches. This is a straw man, and what's, what's he doing? He's attacking the biblical gospel. Got in, even if there was nothing about their lives that looked, about their lives that looked like Jesus. And it made me go, oh, I'm wondering then if our faith actually helps create selfish kinds of people. I started to go into this crisis of faith, and it really um, gave up a lot to be in full-time ministry, and it put me in a place of depression. It's the questions that, of the faith that are, there out, there, that are out there in culture. It's, it, there's, there are questions that are out there that people are wanting answered, and there are spiritual questions of the day. And today, I'm wondering if people really think that what we have to offer is good news. Now, let me talk about the spiritual question of the day. About so now we're going to go to the world to ask them whether or not they think what we have to offer is good news. And, you know, apparently they get to decide because, well, it's the burning spiritual question of the day. Forty years ago, when the boomers were on campus and kind of taking care of culture, those were people who were born in uh, 1946 to 64. Are you in the house? I know, I called you out. Boomers! Back when you were in college and the sort of the cultural milieu of the day, basically the spiritual question of the day was, what is true? Right? Because there was something called truth that was absolute. And if we could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus actually walked on the planet, that Jesus actually died on the cross, that Jesus actually came back to life, that somehow through all of our historical evidence, through our logical arguments, if we can make this faith make sense, then there we go. Someone will change their life around that particular truth. Right, boomers, you know what I'm talking about. So people become Christians because of an apologetic argument? That's only true in part. And what you go back to the time of the boomers, what was happening? Liberal theologians were denying that Jesus rose again from the dead bodily. They were attacking the historical Jesus and basically saying we can know nothing about Jesus at all. What was at stake? The gospel itself. So even this is not even a correct understanding or explanation of what occurred earlier on. But Generation X, about 20 years ago, they started hitting the college scene, and that also started to shape the culture. Uh, Generation X are people born between 1964 and 1984. You in the house? Xers. Xers, when you came on the scene, all of a sudden, truth didn't matter so much. Because we saw what people did with truth in the older generation. And we saw how they used it to oppress other people groups. We saw how... The what? We use truth to oppress other people groups. This is anti-colonialism. You don't know what that is? Read the book, The Roots of Obama's Rage by Dinesh D'Souza. This guy is speaking postmodern anti-colonialism. This chasing of science and truth only created wars, only created hatred. It wasn't the answer that we were all looking for. We were jaded at the, the stuff that our parents were telling us. Now, Generation X was the most distrustful generation, 
right? We could smell BS a mile away. If it's about marketing or institutionalism or if it just smells corporate, we're like, ah, I know where you're coming from, man. I don't, I don't trust you. Yeah, I don't trust you because you're twisting God's word. Because we didn't trust an older generation. So we didn't actually care about what was true. Truth was used to abuse. We actually wanted to know what is real. That, so that when you're sharing with someone who's an exer, really you didn't want to uh, come out with the arguments of why this Christian faith makes sense. Actually what you wanted to do was be vulnerable. We wanted people to be real with us, to share their life stories, to drop the masks and let me know what's really going on. Because then I'll trust you. And then, then I might hear what you have to say. And Xers started to shape uh, the culture. Truth sort of took a back seat, and people wanted to know what was real. Well, millennials started to come on the scene, and they're the ones in college now. They were born from 1984 to 2002. You in the house? Very few of right, millennials will pray for you. <laughs> millennials looked at Xers and said, you guys are a bunch of wimps. You know what I was born to do? We're born to change the world. Xers, we just tried to survive, but millennials really come with a lot of optimism and volunteerism, and they actually want to change the world. Their idol, Bono, right? You can be rich and famous and help a healing world. Perfect. <laughs> millennials really think they can do So when you hear the uh, <clears throat> seeker-driven guys talk about changing the world, apparently they're being missional do it. They have a can-do spirit. And so the spiritual question of the day is not what is true like the boomers or even what is real like the Xers, but what is good. And you can see that dominating our media today. Religion gets blamed for everything, for terrorism, for intolerance, for not being able to get along, for, uh, for, for anger, for hatred. Religion gets blamed for so much. And it's, that's the question of the day. People are wondering, what does Christianity do for the world? Does it do anything good? Does it do anything that helps out? It's a very pragmatic question. If the Christian faith cannot have answers to, uh, what, what does Christian faith have to do with the AIDS pandemic in Africa? What does it have to say about terrorism? What does it have to say about inter-ethnic conflict? What does it have to say about sex trafficking? that if we do not have answers on why Christianity is good in the world today, then this generation and the culture turns its ears off and it shuts its heart. Now notice what he's doing. We have to apparently change the focus of our message for each and every generation because otherwise they'll shut you off if, if you're not asking the relevant cultural question based upon which generation you're in. To whatever we might have to say. And given that that's the spiritual question of the day, shouldn't the gospel feel like good news? I mean, when no. What does the spiritual question of the day have to do with what the good news is? The good news is to be proclaimed to all nations. That includes 21st century American boomers, uh, 21st century American Xers, uh, 21st century American millennials. You're arguing backwards, sir. God's word is true. God has not changed. The gospel doesn't change from generation to generation, and it doesn't matter what the predominant uh, question is that's floating around in the cultural milieu. 
when Jesus taught it, he had crowds. People came and heard him out. They really wanted to know what he had to say because they thought it was great news. Shouldn't it feel like good news today? So shouldn't it feel like? This is a completely subjective argument. And what's he doing? He's attacking the biblical definition of the gospel because according to him in our current cultural situation, this just doesn't feel like good news. Again, fast forward to the day of judgment. Will it feel like good news on that day? But the gospel that we often teach doesn't feel like good news. And some, the gospel that I was taught in the church is this, that it was an individual gospel right? that was about making a decision to secure my place in the afterlife. <clears throat> uh. Boy, he's not even arguing from the biblical definition of the of the gospel. Sounds like he was given a um, synergistic, Pelagian, false gospel, doesn't it? I was taught that if I made some decision, that that secured some place for me in the afterlife. But what is the gospel that Jesus taught? Did he teach a gospel? Uh, I happened to get a chance to actually stew over this question. It came in about 2003, 2003 or 2004, and I happened to be at a Fuller Theological Seminary. I got to take a class with Dallas Willard. Fuller Theological Seminary, a cesspool of liberalism, taking a class from Dallas Willard, a mystic. If you've heard of him, um, we were at a retreat center for two weeks. His door was right next to mine. I was trying to get all that heavenly glow. And here we are in a class, of a room full of pastors. Some of these pastors you would know by name. I was one of the younger people in the room. And Dallas Willard asks us this question. He asks, so what is the gospel that Jesus taught? All the hands go up. Of course, we know the answer, right? That Jesus paid the penalty of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. And so one of our pastor friends says that. He, he was probably Baptist or something, right? And he actually shares that this, this answer. And so we're all like, great answer. And we were all really excited. And Dallas Willard looks down his microphone and he says, no. And we went, oh, what kind of liberal class did we just sign up for, right? All of us started to freak out. And that was the right question. And then he pointed us to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. And he said that Jesus himself actually had a gospel to teach. It says this on the scripture. That after John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The word here, good news, is the word where we get the word gospel, euangelion. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Again, the gospel. Jesus here himself actually tells us what he considers to be the core message of his faith. So it's actually good. We need to walk through that passage a little bit more, if we can bring that back. Okay, let's... Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Watch what he's doing here. Let me read, and I'll put it in context. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, quote, The time is fulfilled, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe 
the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Okay, What James is about to do is he's going to pour into the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, something that isn't there. Okay, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. How can Jesus make the claim, the kingdom of God is at hand? Answer, by fact, uh, by the very fact that the king of the kingdom was there. Mm-hmm. By the very fact that the king was present, he himself, Jesus. Okay, So we, what you've got to watch what's going to happen here is he's going to pour into the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, things that are not in the text. He's going to engage in Dallas Willard mystical eisegesis to see things in the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, that are not in that phrase. Okay? Let's continue. It says that, uh, proclaiming the good news of God, that the time has come. The word here for time is the word, uh, it's not the word that where we get the word like hour or chronology. Those are different words in this language. This is the word kairos, which means the appointed time. The time you've all been waiting for. And for the Jewish people that Jesus was talking to, this is huge. This is the, the, the promised time when the Messiah would come and deliver them from the Roman oppression. So when Jesus uses this one word, it's a huge loaded word and everyone's ears perked up. And he said that this time has already come, past tense, before the death and resurrection of the cross of Jesus three years later. That the time has already come, he said, and that the kingdom of God has come near. This is his main message. Now, the kingdom of God, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I just equated that to heaven, the place we go to when we die. So, uh, you know, I had those pictures of Hollywood where, you know, there'd be clouds of white, and we were walking on those clouds. Again, straw man argument. And everyone was uh, dressed in white with white wings, and you could go up to the white pearly gates, and it would open, and people would be playing harps, Right? Everyone was dressed in white. Everyone was white. (laughs) Everyone spoke English. And I had this picture of heaven. And you guys know, of course, Revelation 7, 9 says, heaven is nothing like that, right? You know that. It's going to be every tribe and nation and tongue and and language. It's going to be ridiculous. Uh, Worship isn't just going to be Chris Tomlin and Hill songs, right? And it isn't just going to even be Fred Hammond and Kirk Franklin. I mean, you're going to have merengue worship. There's going to be incredible worship from all the different cultures in the world. Everyone will be speaking different languages. Or, sorry, everyone will be speaking their own language. And we will be able to understand that. I'm going to understand Finnish. You might understand Swahili. You might start understanding what Christian said. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Just teasing. Basically, we're all going to be veritable C-3PO's. Culture will no longer divide us, but actually bring us together to enjoy 
Heaven is going to be amazing. But this passage isn't talking about heaven. And we'll have to define what this means. And he says, so what is this? Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. And the language in the scripture isn't like coming soon to a theater near you. Like it's coming soon. This language is it's come. uh, It's a location kind of language that it's come so close to you that you can touch it. That heaven has come so near to you, it wraps its arms around you. That heaven is so close, you could kiss it. That you are being invited into heaven, and it has come near in location. It isn't far away, but close. That this kingdom of God has come so close to you, you can feel its breath. And what does Jesus ask us to do about that? He says, repent and believe the good news. Now, the word repent, we often take as this religious word, right? Monty Python and the Holy Grail, monks with big oversized Bibles, chanting Latin, and hitting themselves over the head. We think of repentance as uh, lashing ourselves emotionally until we feel really, really bad about something. But the word repent didn't have that language at all. The word repent was just literally means change of mind, change your worldview, change the way you see all of this stuff. And belief, the word for belief in scripture, in the English language, doesn't carry the strength of it enough. It's really to place your trust in. It isn't that you believe something like two plus two equals four, or that the, the earth revolves around the sun, but it's actually that you're banking your life on this very thing. You're trusting it. That's belief. The old illustration is about the guy who's, on the, who's tied a tightrope across Niagara Falls, right? And he yells out to the crowd, do you, you, you believe me that I, I can walk across? And the crowd goes, yes, we believe. And so he goes and does his Cirque du Soleil or Barnum and Bailey and and walks across and the crowd goes wild. Belief in our culture is that we believe he can walk across. Belief in their culture in this time was that you'd be willing to jump on that guy's back and let him carry you across. Because you banked your life on it. And Jesus is using these words that a Jewish historian used in a non-religious setting. He just used it to call a Jewish rebel faction to stop fighting against the Roman government. And he told them to repent and believe. Change your mind about it and trust what I'm saying. And Jesus is using that exact same language. And that his gospel was that the kingdom of God has come so near. Change your mind about the way you see the world. Shift your priorities. Bank your life in this good news. And the word good news isn't even religious language. That word euangelion, that's a military word. It was used by Caesar when he sent his messengers angelos, where we get the word angels. He would send his angels into a conquered territory Right, And he would tell them to share the Roman gospel, which was this. Caesar is Lord and Savior, and the peace and prosperity of Rome, Pax Romana, has come to you. So Jesus takes this military language, shifts it all around to give it crazy, spiritual, human, life meaning. That it isn't just about the Roman government, but about God's gospel.
what? So notice the anti-imperial, anti-Roman theme going on. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. He just read that into that text. And his gospel is that his kingdom has come so close to you that you can be a part of it, change your mind about what you're seeing, and bank your life on this truth. And if that's Jesus' gospel, how can we share that kind of gospel? What is this kingdom of God that he's talking about? You know, there's stuff out there. In, uh, theologians have a, uh, a way of talking about it, like the effective range of God's will. But uh, this is sort of uh, the definition I've got, where what God wants to happen actually happens. Right? So when someone bows their knees to follow Jesus for the first time, yes, the kingdom of God has come among you. But when someone also who's a believer divests his wealth so that he can share with those in need, in Jesus' name, the kingdom of God has come among you. And when Hutu and Tutsi reconcile, pray, take communion together instead of killing each other, in Jesus' name, the kingdom of God has come among you. It is when the very things of God are happening in our midst, the kingdom of God has come among you. And it has begun, says Jesus, that it has come near, that God's ways are happening. And we can be a part. Notice this is a sneaky uh, switch that's going on here. He's turning it into the social gospel. Let me read a couple of passages for you that will help here because he's taken a very unclear verse and let it dictate against the clear verses. One of the basic hermeneutical principles when you are reading God's word is that clear passages always, always, always govern unclear. He's taken a obscure passage, read something into it, and now has made this the center, all because Dallas Willard told him how to do this. Let me read to you a couple of passages. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, I've got a question for you. What is that about? If Jesus' message is the kingdom of God is where where the good things are happening, you know, the, the things that God wants, social gospel style, then why would the disciples had thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately? It doesn't make any sense. You see, you have to take the clear passages, and they govern the unclear. Okay? So, let's continue reading. So, Jesus therefore told them this parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Who do you think the nobleman is in this parable? If you thought it's Jesus, you're thinking correctly. So calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina, your mina, Lord, has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came and saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away well, in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, Well, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You see, when you cross-reference this obscure passage of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14, that he is eisegeting, pouring things into it that are not in the text and you compare it with the other passages where God's kingdom is clearly described. Here in Luke 19, we've got this little thorny problem. Jesus had to tell this parable because there were those around him who supposed that the kingdom of God was going to immediately appear. So how does this parable that Jesus told which is clearly understood that Jesus is the nobleman who went to a far country to receive a kingdom and come back. What is that? That's Jesus's ascension into heaven after his crucifixion, and he's going to come back. And we're to do business in his name with his money, his resources, calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you another passage, though. Okay, Luke 24. Jesus... In the Lucan uh, version of the uh, <clears throat> uh, of the uh, Great Commission, Jesus, Luke twenty four, starting at verse forty four. This is what it says. Then he, Jesus, said to them, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead." and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power. I wonder if we could add in a little bit of Acts here. Acts chapter 1, let's see here. Okay, let's see. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, let's see what's going on here. Is this that what are the apostles thinking? Lord, you're going to rest- the kingdom of God is going to be restored to Israel, right? Right, 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 right. Boom, he's gone. And Jesus says it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. Why? Because the the visible kingdom of God is an eschatological event that's coming. Jesus in Luke 19 makes it clear that he has gone away to receive the kingdom and that he's coming back to rule and to reign. And he has set us about the business of proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his names to in his name to all nations. And when you cross-reference this then with that early Christian creed, which was given to none other than, than Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, around 35 AD is when it was given to him, we read this Christian creed that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This, Paul says, is the gospel. This is the good news. So what this guy is doing after being taught this by Dallas Willard is to basically turn proper hermeneutics on its head and take an obscure passage and make that govern so that we can erase and get rid of that thorny issue, that that gospel that doesn't feel good news-ish, that doesn't feel like it's good news, so that we can replace it with a present-day, emergent, liberal, social gospel that is anti-colonial and anti-imperial to boot. We continue. Part of it. And that, yes, it has this kingdom come. In the future, the fullness of everything that God wants to happen will occur. That that is where we're headed. But in the meantime, we're being invited into this new thing called the reign of God, God's kingdom, where everything he wants to happen happens. And sure, there are these words that talk about that, like righteousness and justice and reconciliation and redemption and generosity, unity, peace, service, mercy, forgiveness, and love. But they don't describe everything of what God wants to do. That God sees our broken world. He sees our broken lives. And God wants to bring this revolution of love and peace and joy. And that's something that starts now because it already has come, says Jesus, and it will be in its fullness in the future. Catching what I'm saying, church? So he's just attacked the biblical gospel, replaced it with a liberal social gospel using emergent postmodern deconstructionism and subjectivity, and now everyone's clapping and, and saying, woohoo, great news. So if that's the case, then shouldn't our gospel, the way we talk about our gospel, reflect that? That it isn't something that's just an individual's thing about a soul that escapes the earth's wrath, but about communities and systems and what God is doing in the world today? In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it says that all things under heaven and on earth have been reconciled back to God through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. 
It isn't just souls, but our relationships can be redeemed. And our institutions and all the things that were meant for good can be redeemed in the blood of Christ. So now we have emergent liberal dominionism. That isn't just about people escaping the planet. God is making a new earth and a new heavens, isn't he? And isn't it, shouldn't our gospel not just be about a decision made, but about a tr- Okay, I want to read more from uh, Ephesians chapter, fi- uh, not Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. I want to point out a very important verse to you. It's verse 19, but I'm going to read it in context. Here we go. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only... We, of all people, must be pitied. Let me read it again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Notice that Paul doesn't argue if we have hope only in the life to come, we are to be pitied. No, Paul actually is arguing the exact opposite that James Chowng is arguing. Paul says, if in Christ we, hope, we have hope in this life only. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in the resurrection and in the kingdom that will be revealed and brought when Christ returns. This side of the resurrection, we can expect persecution and hardship. What he's doing here, he's selling a liberalized, soft soap gospel, the social gospel. It sure does feel like good news to our sinful nature, though, doesn't it? Transformation that's happening in our lives. That Jesus didn't just die for the penalty of our sins, though he did. But he also, as it says in the scripture, he died for sin. He died for our sins, not just to take care of its consequences, but to break the power of sin in our lives so that we can become more like Christ. And then, shouldn't our gospel not just be about the afterlife, but also about the life now, the life of mission? Just think about it. Think about how did Jesus invite people to faith? Come, follow me, and I will make you, and those of you who grew up in the church know exactly what's going to come next. (laughs) But what we often say from our pulpits We often say, come follow me, Jesus, and you'll find peace that you never knew existed. Come follow me, and the joy that's been missing in your life, you're going to find it to the full. And in our worst churches, come follow me, you'll have the mansion on the hill, a couple benzes in the garage, and you're going to be blinging for Jesus. Just name it and claim it. We make the Christian faith all about what people can get out of it. 
But Jesus says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. He told them that their lives weren't going to be about them, their, themselves anymore, that their lives will be turned out to catch others, that it will be about reaching others, that the faith isn't primarily about what they're going to get out of it, though it's true, you will find peace and joy, but that their lives will be turned out in love of God and love of other, of neighbor. And through that, the faith... Yeah, what I don't understand is why he's confusing justification and sanctification. Of course, sanctification results in the fruit of the Spirit being produced in your life. But that's not the gospel. That's the fruit of the gospel. And notice he's pitting the fruit of the gospel against the gospel message itself. This is a theological train wreck message. And notice where all the butts are. Remember, uh, a lot of times, butts erase the thing in front of them. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but... Faith isn't about what we can get out of it, but what the Lord wants to do through us to bless others. And Dallas Willard has a quote. He says that the validity of our religion will be based on the amount of blessing it brings to its outsiders. And that's not found in the Bible. By the way, blessed are the feet of the one who brings good news, the scriptures say. So if you want to bring a blessing, bring the good news of the biblical gospel. That's the thing that blesses the whole world because it's all about what Jesus has done for us. Can that be true of us? Can that be true of us? Okay, so I want a gospel that I can share that actually has all that. So um, what? You want a gospel that you can share that has all of that. Since when do you become the decider of what's the gospel and what isn't? I do. But when it came down to it, and I started talking to friends who didn't know Jesus and really tried to talk about it, well, I would get nervous, right? You guys get, I still get nervous. And then so I would go back to an old image and it would look like this. <laughs> and images have great power. So we needed, we figured out as we were doing our ministry to college students in San Diego that we needed something visual to help Christians remember the shape of the gospel so that we can share this with our friends. So this is what we set out to do. First, We wanted to capture a larger picture of the kingdom of God. Second, we wanted to nestle it within... He wanted to catch a larger picture of the, of the kingdom of God based upon reading something into an obscure text rather than reading the clear texts. Then the story of God. Third, we wanted to make it simple to understand but not leave out important parts of the gospel as Jesus taught it. And four, we wanted to communicate it as the good news it was meant to be. Here's some disclaimers. One, God's diagrams aren't always the best way to, to share the gospel, right? You pull something out, sometimes an exit goes, what, what are you doing? What are you about to share with me? So it's not always the best way, but this is really to help us remember the shape of the gospel. Two, diagrams don't save people. <laughs> I am not giving you a magic wand to go lumos over someone's head and hope that the light of Jesus will shine up in them. All right, that's not what I'm giving you. And third, you can definitely change this for whatever your context you need, that if I felt like I had to lock on the gospel, I'd be a heretic. So this is what we did. We came up with something called the big story. And as you listen through this, it'll have three levels. It'll go through an individual, sort of our relationship with God, a personal level, a relationship with each other, a relational level, and a systemic level. 
And this is something that we call the big story. This became the content of the book, True Story, that, that I wrote. And this is really meant to help us recapture Jesus' gospel, the one that Paul taught. Uh, 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 wait, wait, wait a second. Paul, the gospel that Paul taught was that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. You're pitting the gospel message of Jesus against the gospel message of Paul. You did that earlier, sir. The one that was, uh, Paul taught throughout the scriptures, it is the same gospel, and to recapture it so that it can be good news for our friends. And so what I want to show you, there is something that, uh, is something that usually takes about 10 to 15 minutes to start a conversation with, with a friend, but uh, that's too much time for this kind of setting. So I have something here that was recorded. It's a three-minute clip. And what I'm hoping it'll do is it'll show you sort of the shape, give you a sense of what's there. It's not scripted. It's just the fifth take. You can hear a truck go by it in the recording because I was just trying to get it under three minutes. If I knew how many people would see it, I would have definitely scripted it. But I think it captures a sense of the story and hopefully the kingdom of God, the gospel that Jesus came to teach. Tell me what the world's like. When you turn on the news, what do you see? Between all the violence and war and terrorism and the AIDS pandemic and global warming, we've got to say our world's pretty messed up. What's interesting is how we feel about that. Uh, none of us think that that's a great thing. All of us long and ache for a better world. Well, isn't that interesting? Because um, hunger seems to point to the fact that food exists and thirst points to the fact that water or drink exists. So our longing and aching for a better world seems to point to the fact that either a better world did exist or will one day exist. Well, in the Christian worldview, we believe it did. And that um, back in the day, um, God designed it so that the planet took care of us and we took care of it and we took care of each other. And God took care of us and we blessed him back. And that the whole thing was designed for good. So how did we get here? Well, we decided that we were going to run the show, and when we started chasing our own needs above caring for other people or the planet, we started damaging the planet, we started damaging our relationship with each other, and ultimately we damaged our relationship with God so that the whole thing was damaged by evil. Well, it's great that God actually loves the planet and us too much to leave us that way. So even in our brokenness, in the Christian worldview, 2,000 years ago, God came as Jesus. And in that, he started to teach us a better way to live and began to tell us about this thing called the reign of God, where all the good things that's supposed to happen actually do. And so he taught us, and in his death, all this crap died with him so that three days later, when he came back to life, there's new life possible throughout everything, throughout the planet, in us, and with each other. And so everything is being restored for better. Okay, this is this emergent restorationism, social gospel stuff. This is not what the church has confessed from the beginning. This is not what Jesus taught regarding the kingdom of God. This is a foreign idea by postmodern mystics, liberal mystics, eisegeted into these texts. Well, then what's our response? Well, in this world, that's still messed up. Jesus is starting a revolution, and he's asking us 
to be healed ourselves in Jesus' name, to be healed in each other, and to go out and heal the planet, and that our mission is to be sent together. We're supposed to, our mission is to go out and heal the planet. Oh, good night. To heal. By the way, I've reviewed this on a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, If you go into the archives, look up The Big Story. I review this in depth. Now, how come I can't just jump from here to here? This sounds great. Well, the world's problems are infinite, and we're going to get overwhelmed trying to take care of this on our own. We actually need Jesus' resources so that we can become the kind of good that we want to see on the planet. And that's crucial. So where are you? Are you here, where you think the world is peachy? Or here, overwhelmed by the world's problems? Or are you here, got some sense of God working in your life, but not involved in his mission? Or you're here, you're trying to actually make this world a better place, relationships and you and everything, but have a hard time finding how God fits into the picture. Where are you? Right, and that's the beginning of the conversation. And they tell you where they are, and you start to talk about, what does this mean for you? As you can see, what we're doing through this, uh, maybe the most important thing is what's at stake is who God is and what he's like, right? And in this kind of picture, often what we do when it comes to sharing our faith is that we try to make people feel about themselves, the second, feel bad about themselves, like the second circle, that because they lied on a test or because they... Okay, notice what he's doing here. What's he attacking now? Okay, Jesus said when he sends the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and unbelief. This is Jesus' words, the working of the Holy Spirit. How do you know the Holy Spirit is working? When people do feel bad about what they've done, their sin and their unbelief. So now we've got to get rid of the law so that people don't, we don't want people to feel bad about themselves, according to James Chong. Yet Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Tax collector, couldn't even look up to heaven. The Pharisee prayed about himself. Oh, thank you, God, that I am not like that sinner over there. He sure did feel good about himself. They cheated, I'm sorry, lied, they cheated on a test or lied to their parents that God will send them to hell. Right? We often try to make it so that they feel bad about their lives so they can see how much they need Jesus. And then yeah, and that's exactly what the, the, what Paul said the purpose of the law is. To show us our sin and our need for a savior. So what's he attacking? Sound biblical doctrine, sound biblical preaching of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Kind of bring in Jesus. And what that does is it makes God seem like an perfectionistic kind of miserly old man who's kind of watching you, not helping you, until you make a big mistake, right? And then when you blow it, ha, I knew it, bam, you're going to hell. But No, it makes God sound like he's just and that there truly is consequences, real, true consequences for our sin. But that God is not out to get us because God became was incarnate in Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh. Come to earth to die on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scripture. See what's what he's doing? He's absolutely attacking the biblical gospel and he's attacking it based on what? 
a bunch of feelings, some argument from the the religious questions of the day in different generations, and a complete eisegetical work in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. All because Dallas Willard taught him how to do this. But I've created this great way for you, right? And that's how it sounds to someone who didn't grow up in the church. What this allows us to do as we recapture the entire story is we get to show how God actually designed all this for good, that we were meant to be in a great relationship with him. We were meant to be in harmony with each other. And with the things that are around us, we were meant to actually bless each other. It was meant, all meant for good. And we have then a God that you can actually fall in love with because you fall in love with the things that you think are good and beautiful. And so by doing this, what we get a chance to do is really help a culture see that God isn't as bad as you think and actually meant all this for good, but we messed it up. We were in need of a savior. And now we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world today as he leads us into By the way, this is the same false gospel that Rob Bell preaches. Into it. And in that way, we start to get back to what God is doing and really show who he is, a good, loving God who has always meant good for us. So my friend, uh, I had a student named Tyler, and we were at the University of California in San Diego. And we uh, were just talking about spiritual things on the campus. We had sort of run out of uh, people to talk to. So we were still, we were on the campus talking to some people. And uh, Tyler runs into his friend, Mike. Mike, they had met before at a justice conference. Mike was a self-proclaimed atheist. And uh, so they had that conversation before. But as he had, as Mike was walking on campus, he ran into Tyler. And Tyler says, hey, do you want to know more about the Christian faith? I can do it in about five to ten minutes. And Mike says, sure, I got five to ten minutes. And they start talking, and he walks them through this diagram. Tyler walks Mike through the diagram. After it, Mike slaps his thigh, and he goes, I knew God would be like that. Mike, a self-proclaimed atheist that says there is no God, betrays his own faith system and goes, I knew God would be like that. And they started studying the Bible together. What is at stake is who God is. And hopefully this is something that will help bless you to share the truth of who God is with your friends. Let's pray. Done. So do you think the emergent church is dead? Think it's going away? No. It's set about on its mission to completely redefine the gospel And it has as its target the mainstream of American evangelicalism. What you just heard was a full-out assault against the biblical gospel. And what is at stake is God. And what is at stake are the souls of the people who are listening to this. We don't get to change the gospel because of how we feel about it. God's word tells us what the gospel is. And what this man told us ain't what the scriptures teach. It sounds good, it sounds nice, but it's convoluted and jumbled, and it attacks the very biblical gospel that Jesus has told us to proclaim. 
and the very biblical gospel that the disciples proclaimed. What is at stake are men's souls. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so. My email address... Uh, <clears throat> getting ahead of myself. <sighs> you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>